This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to More Than Amuse podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome to More Than Amuse podcast. I'm Sadie. And I'm Stani, and happy spooky season. It is officially October. We are here. We have arrived. <laughs> we have arrived. And listen, you might not think that women in the arts can get spooky, but it you're wrong. Can it can get spooky and we're about to show you this month all the ways that feminism ties so directly to spookiness and (laughs) halloween and all of it i always love october with the podcast first off it's Mm -hmm. the month we started so there's just that nostalgia there of like beginning the podcast in october we always get to celebrate our podcast birthday every year in october Mm -hmm. but also just like the vibes are immaculate you know they really are (laughs) and you know like the chill is now in the air outside at nighttime finally and i just i love it i love it so much too it like poured today like down poured rain and it was enjoyable yeah that is really nice well starting off i guess we should talk about this month we are reading frankenstein And we'll announce it because this is literally coming out the 3rd of October. So if you Mm -hmm. want to read Frankenstein with us, please do it. We're going to go on and do Instagram Lives every week, kind of talk about the book and what we're reading and what has happened. Look at us. This is a full-on book club now. (laughs) I know. I was like, we are taking this one step further. We are. In honor of, you know, though, Mary Shelley. Right before we started recording, Stani and I were talking about, like, how have we been doing this podcast for two years and not talked about mary shelley yet i mean we're still not talking about her this week but we're dedicating (laughs) more of a month to her by reading frankenstein and then she's going to be the person that i cover later Mm -hmm. this month so yes come back for that and come join us on instagram it's a pretty easy read all things considered it's only got like 20 something chapters i'm pretty sure it might even have less than that i actually remember reading it as a senior in high school And, you know, I feel like a lot of, like, the classic books that you have to read, I didn't always love. Like, I really didn't like A Tale of Two Cities. And, you know, you're usually dragging your feet as a Mm -hmm. teenager to read those books. I loved Frankenstein as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old girl. So, like, I feel like that's a good sign for something. I feel a little bit like I got gypped because I was in, like, the IB English class. And so we had to read, like, internationally relevant books. Mm-hmm. So I read A Farewell to Arms and this one weird one that I can't remember the title of. And they were all very depressing and about men and it was really sad and disappointing. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a very feminist English teacher who at the time I thought she hated me and I thought she was grumpy. But the older I've gotten, the more I've come to understand her grumpiness and also like fully realize like, oh, every single book she gave us was like very 
feminism like dr- like driven it was their eyes are watching god which if you haven't read that book you should totally read it i loved it i want um to. frankenstein dollhouse they were all female authors and i remember at the time like me and my best friend were like ugh it's so obvious what she's doing and now i'm like ah it was so obvious what you were doing it's good for you (laughs) so that's awesome we all grow up everybody and we love mrs maxwell i think that was her name i feel like i need to go back and read like the high school reading list you know and like go through and Mm -hmm. read them because i missed out on all the classics i had to read the great gatsby on my own time which was fine but still (laughs) i feel like now though you'd probably enjoy them more definitely i would have as a 17 year old i don't know maybe some 17 year olds who are listening are big fans and if so you are smarter and more developed than i guess i was (laughs) at the age of 17 i sure hope that the children of today are doing better than we all were i don't know at least just better than i was who knows anyways well i'm very excited to hear about who we're learning about today should we do our usual have you made any art this week that you want to talk about? I had a photo shoot at work this week. That's so exciting. yes. With your I Christmas village? Did. Yes. My little Christmas setup. The lighting worked out perfectly. We had like strips of light that we put in between the different layers of the background. Mm. And the snowflakes were a pain in the butt because they were on these fishing line strands and they were getting all tangled and I'm going to have to Photoshop every single one of them. So that's really fun. <laughs> love it (laughs) but yeah it was great it went way faster than I thought it would but we got it done we got like all the pictures we needed and I'm already working on ads for them so it was really exciting it was a good little week for me that was pretty much all I did (laughs) that's exciting Mm -hmm. I have a show in Nashville this weekend that's like a full like 30 minute set I got asked to do it it feels like it was last notice I don't know. Maybe this is how fast they always do it. But yeah. anyways, it's with Breaking Sound Nashville, which feels like a official show. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think it is. But I'm very excited to put on the show and practice for it last night. It went really well. And so, yeah, it should just be a good show on Saturday. That's awesome. I'm really excited, even though I did have to watch funny girl alone I know I'm sorry to ditch you for our watch party but <laughs> alas it's rehearsal okay. ended up being like two and a half hours I don't know what no, I was thinking I was like this could take an hour no that was stupid well the movie I- was really long too so we were kind of in the same boat of thinking things would be shorter than they were now I have to watch funny girl on my own time to <laughs> actually know what it's about which yeah and then let me know if you felt the same way I did, because I was kind of I frustrated. liked watching your recap, to be honest. Good. Which is another thing to join us on Instagram, because this week or this month, we're going to try and do a lot of like watch parties. You don't have to watch with us, but it's kind of fun if you want to. But we'll be giving lots of our thoughts on just random feminist spooky movies. And like yeah. I mentioned, there are more than you think. So there's some fun ones coming up for sure, especially with Mm -hmm. this month. And I found an app that's really great. It's called a rave and it works on your desktop or your cell phone. So Mm -hmm. we'll be using that for everything, but that way we can chat. And it also lets me use every platform that's available. So cool. Yeah. So details to do all of that are on the Instagram stories as well. So, I mean, if you're not following us on Instagram, you are truly missing out at this point truly missing out what are you even Mm. doing it's gonna be a waste of a month if you don't follow us (laughs) who even are you at this point yeah (laughs) anyways 
Yeah. So who are we talking about today? We are talking about Millicent Patrick. Um, yes. And I actually read an entire book to prepare for this episode. There we go. Good yep. for you. I'm very impressed. Which it was very good that I read that book because there's actually hardly any information about this woman on the internet. Pretty oh, much really? all of it goes back to this book. So thank heavens that book exists. The book I read is called The Lady from the Black Lagoon by Mallory O'Mara. And it was fun. It is kind of a split between like a biography and then like an autobiography of the author, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. She talks a lot about like her journey of finding Millicent and like her own personal thoughts and experiences and feelings because she is a producer and I think a director in the film industry herself. And Millicent worked behind the scenes in the film industry as well as an actress for a time Mm. period in her life. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely like a lot of personal anecdotes. It's not a straightforward biography, but I did enjoy it very thoroughly. The only problem I had with it (laughs) is at one point um, she loses all trace of Millicent. And so her friend tells her to go to the Mormons. And she has this whole thing where she talks about how much Mormons love genealogy, which is true. But then she says it's because Mormons practice marrying dead people. And that they, like, marry off random strangers to dead people after they pass. And that is false. I would like to state that. (laughs) You're like, actually, no, but. Yeah. I was a little horrified. I was like, no one is getting married to anyone who wasn't married in real life in any way. Yeah, so that part was a little, like, freaky. She was like, I gave him my information, and now I, like, could possibly end up being, like, a zombie bride for some lonely Mormon boy, but, like, don't worry. to find Millicent. It's like, you know what, "Mm -mm." if there is anyone out there who thinks that that is them, no. You will not (laughs) be a zombie bride to a random Mormon man. So, yeah, that part was a little, like, jolting, because I was just like, what the heck is she talking about? Like, no, not quite, but (laughs) anyway. Yeah, it made me want to, like, write her a letter and be like, I am sorry, but, like, you're fine. Like, I promise no one is going to marry you off after your death. (laughs) But, um. That's hilarious. Anyway, yeah. And other than that, I would still recommend it very much so. Um, It wasn't incredibly long. I listened to it on Audible. So I actually don't have a book to reference for a quite a few parts. So I'm going to try to do it as much by memory as I possibly can because I can't just like look back and flip at it. I was going to order a hard copy and it just wouldn't uh-huh. get here in time. Cool. No problem. But let's talk about Millicent Patrick. So Millicent actually went by like a million different names. And she actually talks about that in the biography a ton. She was born Mildred Elizabeth Fulvia de Rossi actually so it was Mildred Rossi in the beginning I'll explain how she ends up as Millicent Patrick cool (laughs) but uh, she was born on November 11th 1915 in El Paso Texas and she's the second of three children and her father was actually an artist himself he was an architect but he handled like the construction he was the superintendent of construction for Hearst Castle which is like this really famous historical building in California It was owned by William Randolph Hearst. It's huge. It still exists today. It got turned into like a state park 
and you can go take tours of it and everything. It's been around for like a hundred years now, but it overlooks the village of Sam Sinian. And so um, something that's also really cool about it is that her father, Camille Rossi, worked directly underneath Julia Morgan, who was the first licensed female architect in the state of California. Oh, so very cool. (laughs) Something that would have been cooler is if Julia Morgan could have been more of like a role model, like an influence in Millicent's life because she was this like successful female independent artist, you know, but Rossi like hated Morgan, (laughs) like absolutely despised her. And honestly, like Millicent's dad wasn't that great of a guy. He was like really argumentative. He got in a lot of arguments with people and tried to undercut Julia Morgan every step of the way. Like he would go directly to the owner of the house, William Hurst, and try to talk to him about things and then like blame it on Julia Morgan. So it was a very Mm -hmm. like tumultuous working relationship and he was definitely at fault. However, he was brilliant at what he did. At one point he moved like an entire tree without killing it because William Hurst decided he wanted it somewhere else. So they mm-hmm. like literally moved to this like 150-year-old tree just over and it lived, which hardly ever happens. Obviously was very good at his job because they put up with him for quite a while, regardless of everything that he was doing. There we go. Yes, but she grew up on the grounds. They had a schoolhouse down the road from them on the grounds that they would go to. There was a huge staff because it was a castle, like not just a regular house. And there was like beautiful grounds and everything. They lived in a little like a worker's cottage down at the bottom of the hill. And then the mm-hmm. castle was up at the top. But sometimes they weren't invited to like the really fancy parties. But sometimes mm-hmm. William Hurst and his wife would invite all of the staff and their families up for like dinner parties and things up there with all of the kids and stuff. Mm-hmm. And Millicent was very fascinated with William Hurst's wife. Millicent Hurst. Okay. Yes. So you have to remember her name was Mildred at the time, and she loved Millicent Hurst. She just thought she was the epitome of, like, glamour and beauty and everything that she wanted to be. She, like, lived in this grand castle and had a handsome husband and was just beautiful. So that ended up being the reason that she changed her name to Millicent later in her life. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> So in 1932, because of Julia Morgan and Camille Rossi's relationship and how bad everything was going with him, Morgan actually appealed to the Hearsts that Rossi would be removed from the project, and he was. It's a little bit sad. I mean, like, not that he was entirely undeserving of this, but, like, he has pretty much been removed completely from the history of Hearst Castle. Like, if you were to go on a tour, they wouldn't mention him at all, even though he was, like, extremely fundamental to the building and everything of it. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And that was just because of, like, the horrible relationship that he had with everyone. But he was extremely fundamental to the project. He just wasn't a great person, and so a lot of people hated him. Just written him out of history then. Yeah. So it'll be hard for you to find anything about him in Hearst Castle, but there was a ton in the book about different things that he did and how he worked on it that she found at Hearst Castle specifically. So then the Rossi family moved to Glendale, California, and in 1933, Mildred started attending Glendale Junior College, but left just two years later without graduating. 
And this was kind of a huge argument her and her family had. She wanted to go to art school. Mm. And they weren't extremely supportive, but finally they relented. And she ended up going to Chonard, I think is how you say it, Art Institute. And she ended up going there for three years, focused on illustration and drawing. And she applied and got three scholarships, actually based on her talent. So she was able to afford to go, which was amazing. And it was a wonderful place to be because at the time, Walt Disney was looking for a college to partnership with for his animation studio. Wow. Yes. So in the early days of Disney, they found out really quickly that they had to do very unique things with illustration in order to get animation right, which makes sense, right? When you're changing the way that movies are made and they're being animated, it kind of changes the way that you draw and illustrate things. And it was getting really hard for him to hire animators because he had to go and train them first and then it was like hard for them to figure out whether or not they could actually do it until the training was over so then you're like paying people and then ending up having to fire them because they can't actually do the job you hired them to do interesting because it's not like there was a slew of animators at the time no like this was the beginning of animation so they were kind of creating it So he went around to a bunch of colleges in California and asked them if he could, like, help fund a part of, like, their illustration department in turn for them to teach his animation style in their college classes so he could hire directly from the students of the college. Sounds like an extremely beneficial relationship, right? Yeah. However, multiple universities turned him down. Really? Was it because, like, they didn't think Disney would be worth it? Or I wonder... I mean, Walt Disney wasn't the name that it is today. Mm, I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I think that, like, they were just like, what is with this crazy guy who says he's going to draw movies? What do you mean? Those have to be filmed. You know? Like, I don't know entirely what had been out yet. I know it was pretty successful already. Like, when did Snow White come out? 1938. Wow. So, yeah, it wasn't the very first. But it was still, like, a very new art medium. Yeah. So... Bunch of people turned him down. Finally, Chonard is like, yes, we will take it. We will do it. This sounds great. Good for them. Yeah. So Millicent is literally attending Chonard Art Institute where they're teaching the specific Disney animation style, which Mm. is the college that Disney is directly hiring from. Yeah. It's a pretty great place to be. (laughs) And so after finishing and completing her degree there, she ended up working at Walt Disney Studios in 1939, which would be the year Snow White came out, actually. So she didn't work on Snow White, but she started that year. Oh, okay. So very much brand new that like, yes, Snow White literally hadn't even come out yet. And he was looking for people to help him with animations. Yeah, I think at that time it probably would have been like the Steamboat Willie yeah stuff that they were doing and then their first full feature film was snow white snow white what's really cool about it too is that so i learned so much about disney in this book <laughs> and it actually like made me respect him so much you know like sometimes when you hear about famous men you're like oh great you know yeah. like the disillusionment falls off like kind of when we learned about elvis and you're just like yes. oh crap you know <laughs> like he uh-huh. kind of sucked um disney it sounds like he was an extremely stand-up guy. Um, really? I feel like I've heard yeah. that he wasn't, but I guess I don't know why or how I, or where I've heard it. 
at least when it came to the women that worked for him. I guess maybe right. not in every way, but like in well, that I'm sure way. he had his issues. But you know what? That's fine. You, it, nothing disappointed you about the way he treated the women he worked. Yeah, like, like at least his good. female employees. There was actually an entire female department, which sounds bad, but <laughs> there was a reason. Okay. Um, yeah. So a lot of the like full on animators were men. Okay. Because it was the 1930s, and what did you expect? And because of the way that male and female relationships worked during that time, like misogyny was just very apparent. Disney wanted to protect the female employees that he was hiring. Okay. So he hired them primarily as it was called like the ink and paint department, which I'm going to try to explain what it was. (laughs) But they were a completely female department. And the way that that was is so that the women could work without the men hitting on them. And the men could work without getting distracted by the women. Because the women are all fresh out of college. Like, yeah. Beautiful so, like, young halfway ladies. there that, like, obviously men should be able just to work without being too distracted by women. But, like, at least it was in the mind of protecting these young women from predatory yes. men. And, like, there was huge restrictions on it. The men were not allowed anywhere near the ink and paint department. They weren't allowed to go in there. They weren't allowed, like, you know. They were banned from there. And also, like, the women had, like, their own little, like, tea time and everything that they were able to go and have their own time and breaks and everything that they did as part of the ink and paint department as well. So, I mean, like – is separation equality? I don't know. But, like, he was trying to keep them safe during that time period because of the men that he worked with and employed, you know, that he knew mm-hmm. that it would be a problem. This is kind of more of a condition of the time. <laughs> the animators are the ones who draw, like, the movement. So they, mm-hmm. like, draw these rough pencil pencil sketches of, like, the character moving across the screen. And then the ink and paint department was the ones who actually went in, drew the final lines, and colored it all in. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they weren't doing, like, the character design. They weren't even doing, like, the animation. But they were the reason that the film looks the way it does. Without them, it's just a bunch of rough pencil sketches. Okay. And it was really intense work, too, because they had to put it on these celluloid sheets. And they were doing it with, like, ink and not like a ballpoint pen, like full on like ink pens. Uh-huh. And then they also had to paint it in. And I think the paint they used was like oil based. They ended up trying like a bunch of different kinds too. Okay, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of details. Actually, there's another book I want to read. We're gonna have to read it sometime for like <laughs> uh for a monthly book episode because while she was doing this book, she ran into the author of another book. Um, the Queens of Animation. It's called The Untold oh, Story no way. of Women Who That's Transformed cool. the World of Disney and Made Cinematic History. And oh, we have to read that. Yes, exactly. It's by Natalia Holt. And she, um, so she talked to her. So it was like these two authors of these two books, like talking to each other because Millicent was obviously one of those early animators. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. That's cool. So, it was just like this really intense process. She talks a lot more about it. I'm sure it's in the book. We'll have to cover it more in the future because I don't quite get it still, especially now because it's changed so much Yeah, because it's all digitally done. So I'm sure it was much more intensive than it 
ever will even come close to now. Absolutely. But for every, like, animator, it's estimated that there were about 10 women working as inking and painting. So there was a lot more women involved in the animation process than would ever be credited, especially because of how movie credits worked back then. So Mildred Rossi, as she was still known, even though I'll probably end up referring to her as Millicent for most of this, (laughs) uh, she was in the ink and paint department and then... Disney decided to start hiring from their ink and paint department into their animation department because Uh when they've worked on ink and paint for that long, they pick up on a lot of things. They can move over to animation more easily, which makes sense, right? And so she was one of the first female animators at Disney. She claimed her entire career that she was the first. There's no proof to prove that or deny it, really. There was a couple of women that started around the same time as her in the animation department. So it's probably Mm. more accurate to say she was one of the first. But I guess depending on when their films came out or something, you could claim that one of them was before the other. I don't know. Got it. Anyway. Yeah. She was one of the very first. And her big project that you would be able to see her work in most obviously would be Fantasia, actually. (laughs) Ah, that's cool. Yes, which it was so fun to hear her talk about the history of Fantasia because I loved Fantasia. Yeah, me Um, too. The one that we watched the most was like the Fantasia 2000 Mm -hmm. because that was like the newer one. (laughs) It was like Rhapsody in Blue and like all this other stuff that was just Uh fun. But obviously this was the very first Fantasia, the 1941 And it was like a huge project that they didn't know if it was going to make a lot of money or not because it was kind of a weird concept to put a bunch of animations to classical music and show it in a movie theater. Yeah, I mean, honestly, fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it is kind of a weird idea. And it was a huge because there was so much animation involved in each sequence. Yeah. And yet, like... I mean, I feel like if that's a new art medium, though... Like, then it would be even more impressive. You know, like, I don't know for sure if that would work as well nowadays, you know, as, like, a new thing. But I I don't know. But, like, it's now it's, like, seeing, like, a fireworks show or a drone show, you know. I've heard of these drone shows where it's, like, it's so cool because where have we seen a drone show? But, like, I'm sure years from now it'll be less cool. I don't know. (laughs) No, definitely. I think that's what ended up bringing so many people in is because it really was to showcase what they could do with animation. With animation, yeah. And that's why so many of them are just amazingly cool. And for her whole sequence, she actually worked with pastel chalk, which is Mm -hmm. really cool too. So it was, like, animation is just, like, a mystery to me. Like, it blows my mind to think Honestly, same. A complete (laughs) mystery. What's even cooler about it is that she was in charge of the animated creature Chernabog and the Night on Bald Mountain sequence. Google, like, Night on Bald Mountain because you'll recognize it. Night on Bald Mountain from Fantasia. Because I had to, like, Google it, too, and then I was like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Then you get it. Then you're like, yeah, I remember. That's, like, iconic. Yes. And it's set to, like, the Takata and Fugue. It's kind of like abstract impressionistic. They actually, I read an article where they talked to Mindy Johnson, who's an instructor at Cal Arts and is an expert on the history of women animators. Mm-hmm. And she talked about the whole sequence about like, you know, Chernabog, he's on the mountain and Disney wanted like the creature to be defeated by light. 
So when the sun rises, the creature disappears. Uh And there's like the blue pastels that reflect across all of it and everything. And what makes it even more fun is this is the first monster that Millicent ever designs in her career, but it would not be the last. Ah. Yes. So Chernabog from Fantasia was her very first monster. And this part in the book was actually really touching too because like the author talked about how Chernabog was always like her favorite growing up because she's like obsessed with monster movies and everything. She just like loved that part of Fantasia and that when she found out that Millicent was actually the one who worked on that part, she just like started sobbing because she was like, how can like my favorite monster movie creator also be like the one who designed my favorite My favorite monster. Yeah, like my favorite movie as a kid, you know? So it was just kind of very connecting for her. And I was like, that is a beautiful thing, you know? Yeah, that is so cool. <laughs> yes. So very cool. So she worked on the Chernabog sequence and then also ended up working on part of Dumbo before she left the studio in 1941. From what I remember of the book, a lot of things changed when Walt Disney passed away. Mm-hmm. Anyway, things were changing a lot in the studio. And so it just didn't work very well anymore for her to stay there also there were very strict rules along co-workers being in relationships and she had met her first husband while she was working there mm. uh kind of a trigger warning really quick for suicide and extramarital affairs so avoid it if you want she met paul fitzpatrick while she was working at disney studios and he was actually married at the time um yes so they were having an affair it was not good we do not condone it and (laughs) what makes it even worse is that his wife actually ended up committing suicide later because he refused to stop seeing her oh my gosh yeah so not great then they got married in 1945 and mildred ended up being estranged from her family completely at this time and because they never, of it? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. They like, they were mad about the fact that he had been married, which is fair. Yeah. And then yeah. they were also mad about, she started to model in like trade shows and become like a promotional model. So she'd go, I always think of like Cece and New Girl when she's like showing off the car. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Just has to do it. Like that kind of stuff. They'd like go to these trade shows and be the ones in charge of like showing off cologne and like all sorts of different things to like help more people come over to the booth because she was beautiful I haven't mentioned that yet but like Millicent Patrick was like known for her beauty like yeah mm. that's like one of the only things people ever talked about about her actually how beautiful really she was yeah so they were mad about that they were mad about her modeling and they kind of like spread this rumor amongst all of them that she was like a prostitute which oh. was very false she was married I mean, they had started before when he was married to someone else, but, like, she wasn't a prostitute. She was just a model. And Oh. Yeah. So is that, like, her side gig as she was also animating? She would also, like, model? Well, this was after she left Disney. So she started, like, doing trade shows, modeling, and acting as well, too. Um, Okay. She met an agent, and she started doing, like, small acting roles. It was mainly, like... (laughs) Like the pretty face in the background kind of stuff. Got it. They'd be like, oh, you're pretty hula girl number five. 
you know, because it Got was that it. kind of movies that they were making too. So a lot of them were not very culturally. Um, <laughs> Some cultural appropriation going on. Definitely, definitely, definitely. But yeah. So her family completely disowned her and she changed her name to Millicent Fitzpatrick. And mm. then they ended up getting a divorce just a couple of years later. And so she changed her name to Millicent Patrick at that time. Yeah, I just kind of wanted a new identity for herself, I guess. Um, but she went by Mill Patrick for most of her career. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Today, I'm spotlighting Roxanne Stewart dot art. She does art and pattern designs, pet portraits and illustrations, illustrations, Cute. which is adorable, um, pattern designs and hand lettering. And she has a, a whole cute shop. The thing that I noticed from her is uh, there was a Grim Reaper that was pink. And then it said on Wednesday, we wear pink. <laughs> and I really, really loved it. And she's already doing like Halloween and all this stuff. And yeah, she had a like adorable. Halloween fabrics clear back in August. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, yeah, if you go on to her shop, she, she has fabrics that you can buy, um, patterns, all kinds of stuff. And like a whole like, spooky line, I guess, or fall line, I guess you could say. But they're amazing, honestly, like the they're coolest so fabrics. Um, and then beyond the fabric, like she literally she has wallpaper, living in decor. Like she has a ton of things, throw pillows even, that you could purchase from her. And it's all just her cool designs and there's like actually so many of them i know it's like not even close to christmas but her christmas fabrics are so cute yeah they're so cute my family does this thing where we make stockings for every member of the family oh yeah my mom has like the pattern we all have our own little stocking but we've had to i made one for winston because i'm extra and we went to like pick out the fabric for it. And sometimes it's like incredibly hard finding cute like Christmas fabric at the store. Yeah. These are adorable. They are really cute. I love them. That's so fun. So yeah, go follow her. And I guess, yeah, on Wednesdays we wear pink. I'm definitely like, I have that now saved and DM to my personal Instagram so that I can post that the first Wednesday of October because that's Oh amazing. yeah, definitely. That's so fun. How cool. Okay, I am highlighting it's B V Key official. B E E V E E K E E. Mm-hmm. She's a TikTok creator. Oh, I cool. found her she has a playlist on TikTok of all of her spooky videos. Oh they're cool. like spooky, but they're like funny sometimes too. And she does like all of these. She does a bunch of, like, makeup looks, too, with it and everything. Like, she's an actress and a makeup artist. I can't really describe them very well. I would just say go watch them. Like, she has one where it's, like, when you didn't lock the door in time and it's, like, suspenseful and she's, like, peeking through. They're all, like, very, very well filmed. Everything is, like, dark and moody and oh. she does these, like, crazy makeup looks. And I love yeah, there's fun and spooky and really cool. Like it's crazy that she's able to do stuff like this and I know. like her scarecrow. Here, I'll show it in a minute. Oh my gosh, that's horrifying. Yeah, right. Like terrifying. And she did that makeup. It's just perfect insane. for this episode. Then to shout yes. out, she's designing all this makeup stuff. 
Definitely. So she does other stuff too. She has like music videos and comedy and stuff, but I love her spooky ones. I just think it's such like a fresh, fun way to show like spooky content. Yeah, I love it. And I'm it. sure she'll be doing a lot more of it because of the month. So Absolutely. Go check go her, check her out. out. She's on Instagram too, same username, but yeah, she's fun. And it looks like she has a YouTube, but she's really fun to follow on TikTok. So Amazing. Yes. All right, now back to the show. After doing some small acting roles, when she was on set, she would like draw portraits of her cast members and like the director and different stuff and hand them out because she obviously was an accomplished trained artist. Yeah. And while there, she met one of the Westmores, who was the Universal Studio makeup department head. Wow. Um, So let me talk about the Westmores. I was not aware of this. This is the craziest story, to be honest. (laughs) Not the craziest, but it's pretty crazy. In the early days of Hollywood, there were no makeup departments. Actors Mm. did their makeup themselves. Oh. And this led to a lot of, like, inconsistencies in shots because, like, you can't do your makeup identical every single time. Like, there's no way. No one probably could. You know, I do my makeup every single day, and I bet it looks different every day. Same. And so, which isn't a big deal in real life, but when you're filming it, like, it changes from frame to frame. That's pretty noticeable. So this guy named George Westmore approached a bunch of film executives and Mm -hmm. was basically like, I'm trained in cosmetic and hair needs, and... I will do it for your movie if you pay me. There we go. And so they did. And him and his six sons basically took over Hollywood as the only makeup artists there were. So it was all men. Men were the makeup artists in the beginning. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So it was him and then his sons, Purse, Earn, Monty, Wally, Bud, and Frank. And they were, four of his sons, Monty, Purse, Earn, and Bud, were all chief makeup artists at four major studios. So pretty much this family was the makeup industry of Hollywood. They were Mm -hmm. it. And having a Westmore was like a really big deal because then you were expecting to get like the best of the best. They also released like a bunch of makeup books where they would like have different looks of like how to make your eyebrows look like this or like, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these like illustrated books of like what your makeup should look like, which is kind of crazy to think about. Like, because now we just have like YouTube and TikTok tutorials, which is very insane. And then, yeah, they ended up working on like the most famous films of all time obviously and had more children and they did more makeup and you know family business yeah it was a big deal for a very long time and Millicent met Bud Westmore because he was the head of Universal Studios like I said so he was one of the sons and she showed him her sketches and he hired her for the special effects makeup department Oh. Yeah. So the way that it worked is that Millicent wasn't the one directly putting the makeup on people's faces. She was the one designing what the makeup would look like. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So they needed someone to like draw out the actor's face and kind of map out what they should look like. And then the makeup department would replicate that. 
So it'd be like, oh, we need a villain. Like, and then she'd draw their eyebrows like arched in a certain way and like, oh, mm. they need a red lip and this is what we should make their cheekbones look like. And then the makeup department would go in and actually do that on the person's face. Got it. Yeah. And then the sketches also helped them keep it consistent every time so that they knew what they were doing so it stayed the same consistently. And she got to work on a lot of like really different things too (laughs) because back then like special effects makeup and beauty makeup were handled by the same department. So they were doing like pirate faces in the film Against All Flags. They did the makeup of Jack Palance in the sign of the pagan she did part of the designs for it came from outer space like the aliens in there Mm -hmm. and then also handled mr hyde and abbott and costello meet dr jekyll and mr hyde oh wow um did the look for the metaluna mutant in this island earth and was the mask maker for the mole people movie as well because universal studios was in its heyday of monster movies (laughs) like yeah that was what they loved to make and that's what they were known for they tried to go away for it for a little bit but their huge resurgence back to it was the film the creature from the black lagoon aha yes they realized that these like cheap kind of gimmicky horror movies were what made them money and so instead of trying to be all proper and important they, they were like, we're going to embrace it. Yeah. Good for them. Because now I feel like that's like, even still, like that's like, what is the iconic Universal stuff? I know. Like, I think of Universal, I think of Jurassic Park, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, which is totally a monster movie. So yeah, just really fun. Something that needs to be noted here is Bud Westmore was a beauty makeup artist. Like that's what he was trained as. Mm-hmm. So he was like the head of the department, he didn't actually end up handling a lot of the makeup or design himself, even though he would go on to claim that he did for Okay. He was just the head of the department. He let his name carry him a little too far. We'll talk more about him in a minute. So in 1943, they come out with this idea for the creature from the Black Lagoon. And the writer of the script and a bunch of people who were going to direct it, they wanted a sympathetic monster, kind of like King Kong. You imagine, mm, you know, like mm-hmm. he falls in love with the girl and like you can't help but adore him even though he's a monster. And that's kind of what they were going for. A lot of people were really mad about that and they thought it was going to be horrible. But it ended up being very beloved and it is a classic movie. So they did a good job. What's also really cool about it is that the suit that had to be designed had to be able to go underwater and on land. (laughs) So they had one actor who actually swims in the suit and then another one who stands on land and walks in it. Oh, interesting. Really, really cool. Um, So Millicent handled the character design of it. Like she drew out the sketches of what the monster would look like. Uh Uh-huh. She didn't do any of like the engineering of it or anything like that. Like she didn't figure out how to make it like go underwater or anything like that. Yeah. But she also hand painted a lot of the parts of the suit. So she went with her paintbrush and like helped design that part. And I think she helped with the mask quite a bit. Wow. So she was very, very involved. But she was the only one who designed what the monster would look like. Like the actual look and feel of the monster was solely hers. Dang, that is so cool. Yes, very, very cool. 
the way that movie credits work though, because they didn't quite understand special effects, all of the credit just went to Bud Westmore. The guys who were in the suit actually portraying the monster, like literally the guy who had to swim underwater with a mask on, he also wasn't credited because they couldn't see their face. And so film credits were just weird. Like if your face wasn't shown, you weren't credited. And if you weren't the head of a department, you weren't credited. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. It's like even the engineers who figured out how to make this suit go underwater and like someone swim in it also got no credit. No credit. Oh, that sucks. So no on-screen credit was given. However, when they were trying to figure out the press tour for this whole movie, they really wanted to go all out and just, you know, spend as much money as possible because they really wanted it to do well. And it had tested like phenomenally well with test audiences and so they knew that it was going to be a hit if they could get enough people to go and see it so while they were like flipping through photos of like the stuff being designed and trying to figure it out they came up with this idea of doing a tour starring Millicent called the beauty who created the beast and have her talk about her process of designing the monster and the whole shtick was that she was like this stunningly beautiful glamorous woman who created like this horrifying monster so she, like, literally was known for how beautiful she was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, like, yeah. Like, everyone commented for her whole life about how gorgeous she was. They, like, wow. couldn't shut up about it. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It's everywhere. It was, like, the only thing people talked about. <laughs> I'm like, maybe this However, is, like, anti-feminist of me to be like, well, I mean, that's not that bad. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, well, no. Good. You gotta yeah, be known for your accomplishments. <laughs> I know. It kind of drove her nuts because she was like doing all this artwork and yet and all anyone could talk about was that she was like pretty. And mm-hmm. also when she was on set, a lot of the times people just assumed she was like someone's girlfriend or like wife, oh, like visiting like, or someone's assistant. Yes. And of course that would drive you crazy and rightfully so. However, they're like, we have this beautiful woman. She created the monster. Like we'll send her on tour and we'll make this whole thing out of it and like who won't want to listen to her like she's gorgeous she's well-spoken she's used to being on film because she's done acting I mean okay yeah I guess yeah they're like this will be great and it would have been great because it would have been one of the only times that the behind the scenes department was like highlighted ever even today like you never see an interview with a special effects artist like that's not other than like yeah yeah other than like the bonus features you don't see True. anyone talk about it. But Bud Westmore was really mad about the fact that they were going to give all this credit of designing the monster to Millicent. Even though she did design the monster. Even though she did design it. Ah, he was the only it. on-screen credit, and so he wanted to be the only one credited because he didn't want people to think that he didn't do anything. Oh, I hate men. <laughs> I just oh, even fine. though he didn't do anything and he actually was like a huge like he complained about the movie constantly and said that it was going to do so bad and that they didn't make it look scary enough and he like had interviewed with people and told them that this movie was going to be a flop and his he had nothing to do with the design of the monster cuz he would have done so much better. And now he's telling them you can't send her on tour and give and tell everyone that she designed it because I should get sole credit. Uh, I hate him. I hate him. <laughs> yeah, I do too. It was really bad. So he threw enough of a fit and he was a Westmore and it was Hollywood in the 1950s. And so they ended up changing the press tour to the beauty who lives with the beast instead of the beauty who created the beast. 
Mm. And they changed it, and she had this, like, official script she had to say everywhere she went where it was, like... Oh, so she still was the person, though. Yes. It just wasn't about the fact that she designed it. Yes. She wasn't allowed to say she designed it. She actually wasn't allowed to say that she had anything to do with the design of the monster at all. So why did they justify her even being there? Because she How was they beautiful. <laughs> and they like they told they were allowed to tell everyone she worked in the makeup department. Oh. They just weren't allowed to say that she designed it. So she was like part of the crew that helped create the monster. But she Got wasn't allowed it. to say she was the sole designer of the monster. That's um, stupid. Yeah, it was really dumb. She had this like approved script that she had to follow and like Bud Westmore like approved the script where it said that he was the only one who designed it and then like they made this weird synopsis where she was like the caretaker of all of the universal monsters. So it involved like the wolf man and I'm trying to think of what the other ones were. Was it like Frankenstein? Because I think Universal did Frankenstein and stuff like that. I think they did. It's like a bunch of monster movies I haven't seen. So that oh, okay. tells you how great I am at naming them. I know it was the wolf man. I think they had some of the aliens. They had mm. the creature. Yes, they had Frankenstein too. The cool. three main ones they have are actually Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I think are okay. their three most iconic movie monsters, too. But they turned her into, like, this caretaker. She said she, like, helped mist his scales with water and, like, they mm. made the monsters seem real and that she was, like, the mom of them, which, right. I mean, traditional gender norms, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they came up with this whole idea of it or whatever, and then they called her and she definitely agreed to go no idea if she actually knew what the original tour was going to be at all but it was like a huge opportunity for her right she gets to go on this no, huge press i mean and at least you're getting some recognition for you know yeah. doing it and she all. really looked at it as like this is her gateway like she's the new face of the universal makeup department yes even though kind of <laughs> even though bud westmore was not happy about that but he finally relented he's like yeah fine whatever you can send her and she actually negotiated like more money because they were going to be sending her across the country for um like months and she'd be doing like all these press tours and like late hour premieres and like all this stuff they also did like this huge photo shoot these pictures are really cool i'll be posting it tomorrow on instagram but she had like all these monster masks they're definitely staged because the mask is standing right there and then she's like posing with a sketch of the monster Mm, too so you can like tell you wouldn't sketch it when it's already made but um, yeah, they just had like a bunch of pictures of her with the different masks of all their iconic movie monsters and her sitting at like the drawing board with like sketches of the monster and all this different stuff. And they used it to promote the tour. So she went on this long press tour and she was a hit. Like the newspapers wrote about her like crazy. She was on like television shows. She went to like late night showings, like everyone was talking about her because they just she was so beautiful and Mm. (laughs) these monsters were you know like and I don't know what Bud Westmore was thinking and even the author talked about this like you can't send the creator of something out and like have people not catch up on the fact that they were the one who did it because there's just like a difference in the way you talk about something when like you helped when you made it make it Yeah, like you you know more about the thought process that went behind it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something that people can just like pick up on. So even though she never deviated from her script ever, she gave Bud Westmore credit every single time. 
And she agreed to that, actually. That was a part of her agreement that she would never be able to say that she designed the creature. Which still sucks. She agreed. Yeah. But obviously, no one wanted to hear about what Bud Westmore because outside of Hollywood, the Westmores weren't even really that big of a deal because nobody really knew who they were. Mm -hmm. They were like this huge deal in Hollywood, but like outside of Hollywood, they were just this random family who did makeup for movies, you know? (laughs) It wasn't really that big of a deal. So they just wanted to talk about her. And there was even like this huge premiere that they did where they like had the monsters drive around in a convertible the day of the premiere with like a sign that's like come to the movie. And then they had Millicent there as well as the actress who is in the Creature of the Black Lagoon. Uh Her name is Julia Adams. So they had Julia Adams and Millicent there. They had all of the universal monsters there. And everyone just loved the movie and they loved the monster and Millicent was being written about everywhere. Her press tour actually got extended, I think, twice. Oh, wow. They sent her to more locations because of how well it was doing. And she was really nice. She sent postcards back to the Universal Makeup Department multiple times, like telling them, send everyone my best wishes. Like, thank you so much. Like, everyone's loving the movie. You know, like praising all of them for like this Mm -hmm. huge thing. Even though she was the face of it, she just felt so grateful yeah yeah well sadly bud westmore ruins it all again yes just an absolute turd so anyway the press turd team at universal literally (laughs) the press team at universal are loving millicent because she's like well-spoken she's doing everything right everyone's obsessed with her and they're excited to bring her back and have her work on more projects because now they've got this famous name that's been all across the country and beloved by everyone in their makeup department, and she's gorgeous. So they're like, great, we can use this in the future. But Bud Westmore was like closely following the tour, and he was like, my name is nowhere, and Millicent is everywhere. And so she didn't obey the rules, so I'm oh. going to fire her. <gasps> no way. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the well, he worst needs to parts, go on the tour then if he wants his name everywhere. <laughs> but they didn't want him on the tour because he was just this weird old white man. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but yeah, so he basically was just like, "She's fired. She can't come back." And the hard part was is that she worked as a contract like employee, so she wasn't like an official employee of yeah. Universal. So it was kind of just up to Bud anyway. Like and. To give them credit, the press team really did try everything they could. They sent him the transcripts of every interview. They sent, like, all the stuff. Like, look, like, she credited you. Like, she did all these things. They tried so hard to get him to bring her back. And he basically was just like, no, she can't (gasps) come back. Even though she was the one who designed it. It's not, oh, I I hate him. And the sad part is, is that, like, she wasn't given proper credit until this book was written that I read. Wow. Yeah. Because they interviewed, like, a bunch of people. It was kind of like an urban legend because there's, like, a few photos of her and then obviously the tour. But because the only on-screen credit was Bud Westmore and because there were so many people saying, like, Bud Westmore was the sole creator, including himself, they, like, didn't think it was her. But there have been later interviews with people who were a part of the makeup department of that movie that were like, no, she did it. Like engineers wow. and projects. 
and there was like a couple of people that were like, oh, but the one guy who acted as the monster said he only met her once when she touched up her suit. He wouldn't need to meet her. At that point, the suit was already made. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, of course he didn't meet her. He didn't even meet the guy who played. Yeah, he was like the swimming monster. He didn't even meet the guy who played the walking monster. Like, so how would, yeah, like that's not proof. Yeah, it's like movie sets are chaotic. If you don't need to directly enter, like face with someone, you won't meet them. You won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this book was one of the major major reasons that she's even given that credit, even though there has been like a few other small things. Um, there was like this magazine called Famous Monsters, and wow. they mm-hmm. did an eight page article documenting like her creation and work on the in the film. Um, They also did talk about Bud Westmore, obviously, so he had a picture in there, too. But, I mean, he was the head of the Universal Makeup Department, even though he wasn't really doing any of the makeup himself, so. What a horrible human being. (laughs) I hate him. Yeah, but the guy who did the article was Forrest J. Ackerman, and he knew Millicent Patrick himself, so he wanted to give her credit. And then there also was a 2011 article by Vincent DeFate that was kind of talking about the Gill Man work. They called the creature of the Black Lagoon, Black Lagoon the Gill Man as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of known as both. But that was her last project behind the scenes ever. Oh. Um, which really, really sucks because I feel like she would have had a very long and very wonderful career if it weren't for Bud Westmore. Ugh, I like hate it when in these stories where there is just like such the clear villain, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it really was just some man who stood in their way and had the power. Like, this is just like the perfect example of why we started this podcast, you know, of like to tell yes. these stories. And I like, I'm Definitely. grateful that these stories exist in a way because now I have a podcast, but I hate that they exist. Like, I, um, I wish we didn't have to have a podcast like this. I wish these stories weren't here for us to unpack. I agree completely. Because, yeah, like, it was just... And it's so annoying, too, because it was just his ego. That's... Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just his ego. Because she did nothing it. wrong, and he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle the fact that he wasn't getting all of the glory from everything. Oh, um, they it's also, so bad. Like, other people in the makeup department would talk about how they never saw him until someone came around with a camera and then he was out there grabbing a paintbrush and smiling of course yes yeah because he was a beauty makeup artist and i'm sure he was very talented at that but they were doing monster movies they didn't need a beauty makeup artist Mm -hmm. so he didn't really do much and except ruin her career forever literally Um, yeah, literally, like, the final nail in the coffin for it all, too, is that she was actually, like, being – she was hired out independently by the Westmores to help illustrate their beauty book. So mm. she was illustrating the faces of people, and she got fired from that, too, because he was the Westmore who hired her, and she didn't get credited for the illustrations that were already done. Dang. So they used her work without crediting her, as well as she'd already started designing makeup looks and mask looks for two other movies – when she was fired and they went on to use her designs as the basis of their movies and she was once again not credited and like who knows what else she could have done and like been a part of that's so sad just really really sad Uh as for her personal life there's a lot of like relationships she definitely did not have like a steady love life and (laughs) she was estranged from her family as well so I think it was just really hard for her to like keep 
personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Her first husband that I talked about that started with an affair, um, he actually ended up committing suicide later as well. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, just really, really sad. It was like right after she had changed her name, actually, he and ended their relationship. He ended up killing himself. She then married Sid Beaumont, who she considered like the love of her life for a really long time, who very sadly died of cancer in 1954. Oh, that's tragic. And then she met Lee Trent. This is definitely her most tumultuous relationship. Um, He actually had been a voice actor for the Lone Ranger radio program. Oh. And then he tried to go and, like, start acting, but, like, he just was better as a radio star. So he ended up becoming a businessman, but he was very good at it and got really wealthy. (laughs) Hmm. So they were, like – magnets describes he was like the only man that anyone ever considered as attractive as her that makes sense (laughs) like they were like they were just both beautiful and charismatic and okay yeah so they had like this on again off again relationship for like 10 years um interesting they got married one time then they filed for a divorce three years later and they ended up almost getting married again when he passed away so that was pretty much the longest relationship of her life, but it was like off and on again for a really long time. Yeah. They like had multiple canceled engagements. She like changed her name to like Millicent Patrick Trent and then went by like Millicent Trent for a really long time. But then like, then they got changed divorced. So then she changed it back to like Millicent Patrick. Anyway, her name changes a million times. Also, when she was married to him and dating him, she did a bunch of charity work. Um, I wouldn't say, like, Millicent was the most active person in, like, politics or anything, but she loved Mm -hmm. orphans and children. Um, She was infertile and she couldn't have any kids of her own. So she would, like, try to dote on children everywhere she found them. So she just, like, adored Mm. orphans. And because of how wealthy she was, they threw a lot of benefits and raised a lot of money, which was very sweet. trying to think there's much else it talks a lot about her later life she didn't do a ton she did a couple of like small acting roles she did some independent like personal art projects and stuff for people a lot of portraits or just like little things but Mm -hmm. nothing too crazy for the most part she just ended up raising a lot of money for stuff she was a huge member of the screen actors guild oh loved to be a part of that she had like her sag card with her everywhere she went And she would, even when she got later on in her life, she tried to always do one role a year so that she could renew her SAG membership because she just wanted to make sure she had that. In the very last years of her life, she tried to reconnect with her family and they told her no. Wow. Which is really sad. Yeah, Um, that's horrible. Yes. So she never got to reconnect with her brother or her sister no matter how hard she tried. But she did end up reconnecting with her daughter. Um, her sister's daughter. Sorry. Oh, okay. I was like, her daughter? Okay. Yeah, she yes. didn't have any kids. But she reconnected with her niece. And her niece actually looks a ton like her from what the author of the book said. She got to meet her niece. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. And talk to her. And she was with her when she died. So. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So she like, actually had to. Mm-hmm. Got to have that. Yes. Yeah, so she didn't die alone. She developed Parkinson's disease in 1988 and then later ended up with breast cancer, which is like the worst combination of things. 
So she ended up passing away in February 24th of 1998 at a hospice care center in Roseville, California. And she was cremated and her ashes were spread in the ocean. Wow. But really just like a fascinating lady. <laughs> to be fair, she did like lie about quite a few things. And so it makes it kind of hard to credit her for everything that she claims oh. to have done. Um, she claimed for a really long time that she was descended from Italian royalty. It was like right after she got estranged from her family and she was starting her acting career. And I think she was mm. just trying to give herself an edge. Because it's, yeah, like, way cooler to be, like, descended from Italian royalty than, than it is to not to just have a relationship like... with your family. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And because she didn't have a relationship with them, they never, like, spoke out about it because they wouldn't say anything to the press, you know? Like, they weren't going to out her. So she just, like, claimed it for the rest of her life. And she actually did end up going back to Hearst Castle in the very late years of her life with a bunch of her wealthy friends. Wow. And touring it again. And she was very upset that they didn't credit her father so Mm. she tried to do some stuff for that and actually gave an interview to them about growing up on the Hearst Castle grounds I mean I'm Uh, surprised that she was still loyal to that after you know her family wasn't very loyal to her I know it really sounds like they were really horrible to her like she called her sister in the last few years of her life and she was like hey like I'm losing mobility like I'm, you know, I live alone in my house and I'm having a really hard time. Um, can you come stay with me? And her sister basically just said no. Wow. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by. I know. Oh, yeah, I thought yeah, she yeah. was a prostitute, but like, I don't know. So confused. She wasn't. She was just. But I mean, even if that was true, like, <laughs> um, hello, go yeah. be with your family. And obviously, like, I kind of interwove the state of the arts into this, but one of the, I think, the biggest state of the arts of this is the fact that Millicent Patrick is still the only woman to have designed an iconic movie monster. The only one. Wow. She is the one and only. All of the rest have been designed by men. And as we've talked about previously, it's very hard for women to get involved in the horror genre in general, Mm -hmm. um, let alone be represented and that also follows for behind well, the scenes. Well, I was going to say, I feel like that, I mean, we have exhibit A of what has, you know, what happened to her. Yep. So, yeah, that is Millicent Patrick. There's so much more in the book. Like, it goes into every single detail of every year of her life, as well as how the author found it all out. So That's I would cool. highly recommend it. Yeah, it was really phenomenal. It was a wonderful book. I think it's even voiced by her in the Audible edition, which was oh, really cool. Oh, really? That mm-hmm. is amazing. The author also has a tattoo of Millicent and the creature from the Black Lagoon on her arm. Aww. And it's on the cover of the book. What's the book so, called again? Uh, the Lady from the Black Lagoon. Okay, cool. So I loved it. I think it was a wonderful, wonderful book. Just don't believe the part about zombie brides and the Mormons. (laughs) But I would still highly recommend it. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Because she goes into a lot of the behind the scenes of like animation and the makeup department in Hollywood and everything else too. Now I'm looking at pictures of Millicent Patrick. She's very beautiful. Right? She is quite stunning. All the pictures of her working on the creature. How cool. I know. And the fun part is, is that we will be watching the creature of the Black Lagoon this week all together. So there we go on Instagram for details of that, because I've heard it's one of 
the most beautiful monster movies too because it's filmed in the daylight, which oh. is crazy for a monster movie. Yeah. And you also get to see the monster swim, which is something that Frankenstein Ooh. never did. So nope. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Oh, and man. it's all black and white, which is really cool because originally they filmed it. They had to decide if they were going to do color and 2D or black and white and 3D, and they did it in 3D, which oh. we won't be watching it in 3D, obviously. But no, I will not. Still really cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for teaching me about her today. I am, like I said, I'm so glad I now have her added to my roster of amazing women to look up to, but also women who are from behind the scenes that deserved more credit for the work that they did. Agreed. I know. It was so fascinating learning about her, and I'm excited to know about the only female monster movie creator. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's really amazing. exciting. Well... Cool. Like we mentioned, join us on Instagram and join us all this month because we have some amazing content planned and amazing women to highlight who have created monsters. And yes, until next week. We will see you again. Bye. Bye. Hey, podcast listener, do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.